ages three and four in kindergarten through fifth grade, you are invited and so welcome to attend Children's Church at this time, and you can head right out the back doors where your teachers will greet you. And if you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of 1 John? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use your phone, do something to uh, get this passage open. And in front of you, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. And if you're new to the Bible, um, look in the table of contents for 1 John. And then the four, chapter 4 is the larger number. And uh, we'll be in verse 17, which is the smaller number. And encourage you to follow along. If we haven't met, my name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor here. Thanks for worshiping with us today. And uh, hey, just a real quick word. We haven't given this disclaimer in a little while. If you've got kiddos hanging out in here, do not worry if they make noise. Now, here's what I think might happen. The dulcet tones of my voice might just woo them to sleep. Who knows? It's been known to happen to young and old alike. But uh, don't stress if your kids are making noise. We're not stressing about it. It's a-okay. If you feel you do need to step out, that's okay too. There's TVs and audio out in that upper lobby. Uh, they can run amok and you can still listen in on the service if you want. But we're glad you're here and that you have your kids with you. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. So for those of you who have kids or pets or spouses, is there a command that you've given someone maybe like 10,000 times uh, that's largely ignored. It, it might be something like, turn off the lights, or clean your room, or take out the trash, or don't talk to me when I'm in the bathroom. Those are the types of things we want to pound into the tiny brains that live with us, and we repeat it over and over again in the hopes that one day they'll grasp that message, and they'll apply it to their tiny hearts, and they'll let us sit in the bathroom in peace without interruption or seeing fingers under the doorway, something like that. Well, John has an agenda this morning, and he is hitting the same note over and over and over again. He's commanding us to love. It's the same thing he talked to us about in the passage we studied last week. And you might think, love again, come on. Can we just talk about politics or something? I mean, this is so repetitive. But John is going to say it until we do it. He's going to pound it into our hearts and heads until we actually love each other the way Christ has loved us. If you were to start at the beginning of the passage we studied last week, chapter 4, verse 7, you go all the way through the end of this passage we're studying today, chapter 5, verse 5, John repeats the word love 30 different times. He does not want us to miss the importance and the power of being the kind of people who love each other in the name of Jesus Christ. In the passage we studied last week, he gave us motivation. Here's why you ought to be this kind of person. Even though the world sees it as weak, even though the world might see it as foolish, here's why love is God's way and it's your way. So having given us motivation... Today, the passage we're studying, he gets very practical. This is what love looks like in the realm of relationships. And, and here's what love accomplishes within those relationships. He's going to take us first to God and explain what God's love to us accomplishes. And then he's going to take us to church. And he's going to explain what our love to each other accomplishes within the church. And then he's going to take us to the world and he's going to explain what our love 
to God accomplishes in the world around us. All of this so that we would be people who love in the same way Christ has loved us. You want to guess what my purpose is this morning? My purpose in preaching this passage is to convince you to strive every day with all that God has given you to love others the way Christ has loved you. In every relationship, in every sphere of your being, God has saved you to be a person who loves. And I'm going to try to convince you by showing you the impact of love on our relationships with God, each other, and the world. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 17. John says this, In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, He's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's a beautiful passage. And especially when you consider the fact that John is writing this letter to a church in crisis. Their hearts have been torn apart by this schism within the church. The, the foundations of their faith have been shaken. They're questioning, is faith in Jesus Christ really, truly the way to God the Father? And in that crisis, in the hurt and the turmoil, John tells them to love. Love each other. Love God. Love the world. And that's the message he has for us today. If you come in this morning with a fractured heart, or you've been through a really bad week, This message is for you. We are the kinds of people who are to love. So John has identified uh, three different relationships in the life of the Christian, and he's described the different ways that Christ-like love impacts those relationships. So what are those relationships? First of all, it's God's love to us that replaces fear with joy. The first relationship John talks about is our relationship with God. And this first section is not about the, the look that our love takes, it's about what God's love accomplishes in us. So verse 17 begins with this phrase. He says, in this, it's a little vague, in this love is made complete. What's the in this? Well, you just have to rewind just a little bit to verse 16. And there in verse 16, he talks about um, how our relationship with God abides. We, we dwell in him. We remain in him. He remains in us. And in that deep, intimate, soul-close, lifelong relationship, we find that God's love is made complete in us. Your Bible might say a different word than complete. It might say perfect. That's an excellent translation as well. So what's meant by that word? What does it mean for love to be complete or for love to be made perfect? Well, 
We've come across this very word uh, multiple times in this letter. Um, We find it first in the very opening lines, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. John speaks of joy, his joy being made complete or being made perfect. But every other usage in the letter is a reference to love. Love is made complete or love is made perfect. So let me teach you a Greek word this morning. Uh, The Greek word for complete or perfect is the word tetelestai, and it looks like this, tetelestai. Uh, Simple definition, maybe far too simple definition, it is the work is complete or it's perfect or it's fully matured or it's finished. Now, this single word, according to John's gospel, is the last thing Jesus utters on the cross before he gave up his life, before he died. In English, it's a complete sentence. It is finished. We just sang it just a few moments ago. In Greek, it's a single word, tetelestai. This is what Jesus said. Now, John takes that word here in 1 John chapter 4, and he says, God's love to us is at work. It's forming us until it gets to tetelestai, until it gets to completion, to its maturity, to its fullness, until the work in us is perfect and complete. And how do you know when God's love at work in you has reached perfection? How do you know when it has reached completion? John gives us a diagnostic tool. Look again at verse 17. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love instead perfect love to telesty love drives out fear because fear involves punishment so God's love is at work in us assuring us that we are loved that we're his children and we can face our final day with confidence and joy in the Lord God does not intend for his children to tremble in front of him. He's our heavenly father, not that heavenly highway patrolman. It's true that the Bible tells us to fear God. Think of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But that sort of fear is awe and reverence. It's not terror. The same way a child has awe or reverence for his mother or father, that's the sort of reverence we're to have for God, not terror and trembling. And so when God's love has completed its work in us, then it means that we will face or think about our relationship with God without fear, but with joy. And the reason we can think about our judgment with joy is because we know we're not judged based on our own works. God's love is teaching us to rely more and more on the cross of Christ and his resurrection. I don't stand before God with confidence in my judgment because I've done great things. Oh God, wait till you see what I've accomplished. I'm going to blow your mind. You're not going to believe it. Look, here's my resume, and here's all the things that people have said about me that are great. Here's all I've accomplished No, no one's going to stand before God in that way. But rather, we're going to stand before God without fear and with joy, love having completed its work when we say, look at what Christ has done for me. Look at what his death and his resurrection has accomplished. That's what makes the judgment for a Christian an opportunity for joy, 
not an opportunity for fear because I know that by my faith in Christ, I'm judged based on Christ's holiness and righteousness and perfection, and that will not fail me. This is an important concept for every one of us to consider, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand clearly what the Bible is telling us today. It's telling us first that every person's going to die and stand before God in judgment. And without Jesus as our advocate, without Jesus as the one who has taken God's punishment in our place, we will stand before God in abject terror. The Bible describes the horrors of God's judgment on sin. And it's not anything that anyone in the church rejoices in or is happy about, as if we think, yeah, send those people to hell. Because it is too awful for us to understand. But here's the thing. The the one who sits in judgment over you, the right judge, the holy, holy, holy judge, is a judge of compassion and love and mercy. And he does not want you to take that burden on yourself. That's why he gave his son to die in your place for your sin. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's the only one that could do what he's done. Everyone has died. Jesus alone is the one who died and rose again because he is perfect God and perfect man all at the same time. He died in your place and took the wrath of God for your sin on himself. And when you put your faith in him, John tells us this repeatedly, if you believe in Jesus, meaning you turn from all you've relied on previously and you are giving your life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to rely on his death and resurrection Well, what happens then is Jesus fulfills a promise to you. He forgives you. He takes away your shame and your guilt. And the judgment that God had reserved for your sin is gone because Jesus took it on the cross. And instead of judgment, do you know what awaits you? Eternal life, blessing, glory, eternity, everything that God has created you for. Throughout this passage this morning, you're going to hear the invitation to believe in Jesus Christ. And I hope you don't leave this building today without having your eternity settled. John speaks to us about the power of God's love to drive out fear, fear of our judgment, so that we can stand before him in joy in what Christ has accomplished for us. And verse 18 closes with a a really important diagnostic statement. Look at it with me. The last sentence in verse 18, he says, So the one who fears is not complete in love. So if you're a Christian and you struggle to feel assurance of your salvation, or if you think of God as perpetually angry and furious with you, well, then you need to listen closely to the end of verse 18. You might think that your fear is evidence that you're really not saved, although you have trusted in Jesus. The issue here is not your salvation. The issue here is love is not complete in you. And so here's what I think you would do. I think you would sit with God until the fear is gone and joy has come. Reading your Bible every day until that joy comes and praying and worshiping and serving. Whatever it is that puts you in front of the Lord, sitting with him and reminding yourself of his promises, reminding yourself of what Christ has accomplished for you and staying there until fear is removed and joy abides. A question we might ask then is, well, if God's love can remove our fear of his judgment, 
can it also remove other fears? And absolutely. If, if we don't have to fear God's judgment, what do we have to fear then? Right? Paul asked the question this way. If God's for us, who can be against us? If, if God has rescued me and saved me, if my fear is gone, then what do I have to be afraid of? There's nothing. But here's what's true. Fear can be debilitating. And over this past year, we've had multiple opportunities for fear to claim territory in our lives. And maybe you know what that fear is like, that white, hot panic of an uncertain future or, or the intense anxiety of a situation that you have no control over. That sort of fear can be both emotionally and spiritually crippling. And so here's what we should do with that. We've done this little um, uh, exercise before. Today's a good reminder for it. Here's what happens it's all too often is our fear grabs us by the eyes. And it's all we can see. It's all we can think about. All of life is translated through the lens of our fear and anxiety. And that means God as well. And so fear leads us to certain conclusions about God. Uh, he's not in control. He's not hearing my prayer. Maybe he's angry with me after all, and that's why all of this is, is happening. But what the Word of God compels us to do is to reverse the order of these things so that we view our fear and anxiety through the lens of God's Word. His promises that are true. The fact that He is with His children and He never lets us go. And when we do that, then we begin to have right perspective on our fear. There are moments we will be afraid. But we must never forget that we belong to a God who delivers, a God who heals, a God who knows every step ahead, a God who has been in control the whole time, even though we lived under an illusion that we were under control. He's a God who's good and compassionate and loving, and that can settle our fearful hearts. However, there is some fear and anxiety that we cannot just pray away. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you to talk to your primary care physician. I want you to go talk to your doctor and talk about the symptoms of your fear, the causes of your fear and anxiety, and what good therapy or counsel looks like and what good medicine looks like. Because Jesus has given us doctors and medication and therapists to help us so that love would develop in us and cast out fear. I've never understood our aversion to getting help with mental health challenges. And what's more, I've, I've never agreed with Christians who have pushed back on therapy and medication for help with mental health challenges. That just makes no sense at all. We don't tell diabetics, hey, just pray the devil out of your pancreas. It'll be okay. We give them medicine. And the same is true when our emotions or things in our brains are just not under our control anymore. Christian, get the help that God has provided and do it sooner rather than later. Do not push away good help because of pride or bad theology. Take the help that Christ has given you and let that fear be put in its proper place. So, God's love to us is working in us to cast out fear so that we can stand before God in joy. 
There's a second type of love that John describes in this passage, and that's a Christ-like love to others that unifies. So he's talked first about God's love to us that casts out fear. This next section is about our love to each other. It's in the church. It's brothers and sisters in the faith. And that love is a Christ-like love, meaning it's self-sacrificial for the benefit of the other person. And John is telling us that we have to be these kinds of people in our house of worship. Look at verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. That should remind you of something we read last week, chapter 4, verse 10. John said, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God has loved us in this way, therefore we're going to love each other in this way. God's love comes with this necessary reciprocity, meaning that I'm not going to experience the love of God and walk away selfish. I'm not going to experience the love of God for me, a sinner, and walk away feeling like I'm better than the world and they better bow to me. When I experience the love of a holy, holy, holy God, it rescues me from my sin, saves me from eternal death, gives me eternal life. Then that natural outcome, the fruit of that real salvation, is I'm going to be a person who loves the way Christ has loved me. To every soul, every image bearer I see, I'm going to love that person self-sacrificially for the sake of their benefit. So John in helping us understand this, speaks quite a bit through this letter about the issue of hate. And he does so right here in this passage as well. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. In a few other places in the letter, he's also talked about hate. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, he says, the one who hates his brother or sister is not in the light, but is in darkness. Now, look, you got to remember, John's not, John's talking about the church. He's talking about believers. The believer who hates another believer. This is not giving us permission to hate non-believers. We'll get there in a moment. But the believer that hates another believer is not in light, but is in darkness. In chapter 3, verse 15, he makes this startling statement echoing the words of Jesus he says the one who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And then here in verse 20, he says the one who says, I love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. So listen closely to what John has said over the course of this letter. Christians who hate are lying murderers who live in darkness. He's not beating around the bush about the importance of this subject and about how serious a sin hatred is in the Christian life. But here's the good news. If we find that hate has taken up real estate in our hearts, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who is our atoning sacrifice. So the presence of hatred in your life and whatever measure it might be there, again, Christian, is not evidence that you're never really saved. It's evidence that you need to, again, confess your sin and our God who is faithful and just will forgive you based on his grace to you in Jesus Christ. So we have to resist the temptation to read this passage as if it's only about other people. Oh yeah, I, I know people who hate, but I, I hope they're reading this today as well. This is about me and you long before it's about anybody else. It calls us to examine our hearts because hatred can take many different forms. 
we just, we, I think when we hear the word hate and think of a person who hates, we just think of, you know, snarling and they've got hidden horns on their head and just, rah, it's just the worst. But, man, here's how devious Satan is. He encourages us to hate in ways that are entirely palatable and okay in a social setting. John described hate in this way, chapter 3, verse 17. He said hate looks like this. It's having the world's goods, seeing someone in need, and refusing to meet those needs. You know what else hate looks like? Hate looks like slander and gossip and lies and keeping a record of wrongs and unforgiveness. All these things dwell in the arena of hate. One arena in our lives that is in desperate need of love versus hate is social media. Let's just talk about that for a brief moment. It's uh, been true in my own life and that, um, that I filled social media with less love and more anger, more rage, more hate. That's why I'm largely off social media today because I found it made me angry, but worse, I was making other people angry. So it's better for me to step aside for a while or forever. But it begs the question, have you considered how to apply John's instructions to love others to your social media activity? Does your social media output reveal you to be a loving person? Do you use social media to express love and value to others? Did you know that the Apostle Paul instructed us about how to handle social media? He really did. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says this, Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. You see, at the end of the day, social media isn't the problem. We are. Even in our digital lives, we have to obey Christ's command to love one another. And instead, what I see happening all too often is we're allowing this digital space to become an arena in which we stoke anger and break relationships that should not be broken. The entire New Testament is filled with commands to love one another. The writers could not stress enough the importance that the churches of Jesus Christ be places where people from all walks of life trust Jesus and also actually love each other. Not just get in a room for theater for an hour once a week. This is the stuff of relationships where we actually love each other. And we're to love one another in word and deed. And that's the goal for every day of our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, he said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We've got a mission to accomplish South Shore Baptist Church, to make Christ known, the disciples for Christ from people of the South Shore and beyond. And one of the primary ways we do that is by our love for one another. We need to practice Christ-like love that brings us together in unity. There's a third type of love that John talks about in this passage. It is a Christ-like love for God that overcomes the world. So again, this is the direction of this love is from the believer to God. The description of it is Christ-like. It's self-sacrificial for the benefit of another. And the payoff, the, what comes from it, is it overcomes the world. So in these final verses, John closes by speaking of our love for God in light of our faith in Christ. And these two ideas are never far apart in John's letter. He's always talking about believing in Jesus and loving one another. He hits those two spots over and over and over again. 
And he does so here in verses 1 through 5. These are two sides of the same coin. To trust in Jesus is to love your brother and sister. And you cannot love your brother and sister without trusting in Jesus. We can't divorce those two. We can't have love for Christ but hatred for others. And we can't have love for others and rejection of Christ. These go together. It's really the the whole message of John's letter here. And verse 1 sums up John's thoughts on this really weighty subject. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. Who's the one born of Him? In this instance, it's our brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Those are the ones who are born of God, the children of God. According to verse 2, the way we love each other is by obeying God's commands. And, and what are those commands? It always circles back to these two things, believing in Jesus and loving each other. Self-sacrificial love for the benefit of the other person. But having said that, again, repeating these things that are most important and that are hardest for us to really get into our hearts, John now gives us another glimpse into the power of love. Look at verse 4. He says this, Everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that's conquered the world, our faith. And who's the one that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John uses the word conquer a total of six times in this letter. Three of those times were right here in verses 4 and 5. In chapter 2, he speaks of Christians conquering the evil one. In chapter 4, he speaks of Christians overcoming the world. Now, we have to define the word world very carefully. We did it last time we came across this this, uh, word in the letter. In this instance, John is not using the word world to describe people, especially those who are not Christians. That's not what he means by world. But rather, John has told us in chapter 2 that the world is that place filled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's filled with lusts and it's passing away. The world doesn't know God and hates those who follow him. The world is the realm of the devil and his counterfeit gospels. So conquering the world here in 1 John chapter 5 is not about conquering people. It is about overcoming evil. And one of the chief ways the church conquers the evil world is by rescuing people from hell by sharing the gospel and loving them to the cross of Jesus Christ. You won't see people saved if you make them enemies to be conquered. You wouldn't be saved if Christ viewed you as an enemy to be conquered, but rather he saw you as someone of great value and he gave his life for you. So in these five verses, John has described how our love for God, for God evidenced through faith and obedience, overcomes the world. It overcomes the power of evil, the dominion of Satan. And it's right for us to conclude that not only will it free us from temptation and sin in our own lives, but it's going to free others from death and hell. If we love God in obedience, we're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can't be obedient and not share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we overcome the world. We think so little of love. I don't mean we think of it... uh, it, not enough times. I mean, we think of it as something small, something quaint, something idealistic, but not really powerful. We seldom consider love to be a primary strategy for engaging the world. We're so easily persuaded to act like the world and to forget that love is God's given strategy to the church. 
The early church had zero political power. Rome ruled exclusively. The early church had no cultural power. They were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. The early church had no economic power. They were largely poor. But they had love and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they turned this world upside down. We've got everything we need to see lives changed for the glory of God. To see this place catch on fire with a love for Jesus Christ. We've got everything we need. And so what good is love? What can it really accomplish? Well, love has the power to change lives. And that's what John has told us this morning. God's love to us changes our life. It replaces our fear with joy. And our love to each other, it replaces loneliness with togetherness. And our love to God conquers evil and gives glory to Jesus Christ. So what human trait has the kind of God-ordained power that Christ-like self-sacrificial love for the benefit of the other person has? Is anger as powerful a change agent? Does disgust usher people to the cross? Does perfect apathy cast out fear? Do we find unity through fighting? Do we conquer the world by being worldly? Are people drawn to, cross to, the, or to Christ by Christians who are mean and humiliating and condescending? The application of this passage is not complicated, but it's not easy. We are to love as Christ loved us. As you know, today's Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Good Friday. And uh, this is the day which we recognize Christ's entrance into Jerusalem to great fanfare. Jesus entered the city with a caravan of pilgrims. And those pilgrims are not from Jerusalem. They're from the region of Galilee, a place where Jesus conducted the majority of his ministry. He was wildly popular. They had been saying for years, this is the Messiah. And this group of travelers is with Jesus, headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And man, they're just, it's, a, it's a parade the whole way. They are pumped up. They are singing. Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. They had this feeling about Jesus that he might just be the long-awaited Messiah. And just outside Jerusalem, before he steps into the city, Jesus stopped and he had his disciples get a donkey for him. And then he rode this donkey into the city. Everyone else is walking. Jesus went into the city. They weren't walking for long. They started to jump up and down and to scream praises to God. And we read earlier the, the, the substance of their praise. They sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And why did they celebrate? Because in riding this donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus is fulfilling a well-known prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, which said that the Messiah would come to his people riding a donkey, and he would bring with him peace and hope for his people. He didn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse. He didn't enter Jerusalem in a tank. He rode in on a donkey. He isn't calling his people to battle. He's calling them to peace with God and a hope for their future. And this led the streets of Jerusalem to be filled with hosannas. But what if those revelers knew then what you know now? You know that he doesn't enter that city to go to a throne. He enters the city to go to a cross. 
They have no idea what kind of Messiah he is. He is a Messiah who will love his people by laying down his life for them. He's going to die on that cross, and three days later, he's going to rise again. And that is the stuff of Hosannas. That's the stuff of eternal praise and glory. To see Christ love sinners by giving his life for us. We can hardly find the words to fill the songs that it deserves. That's the life that he's called you to live. A life of love that we learn by sitting with him at the cross. John was present in a room with Jesus just a few days after this Jerusalem scene. His feet had been freshly washed. And then he heard Jesus say these words in John 13, 34. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So brothers and sisters, let us take up our crosses and follow him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your love to us. It's a love that took the first step. You loved us in our sin and brokenness. It's a love that you've demonstrated. It's not a theoretical love. You gave your son to die in our place for our sins. It's a love with power. It changes our eternities from eternal wrath to eternal glory. It's, it's a love that transforms this world. It's the content of a message that brings dead people to life through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love to us. I pray this morning that you would Help us to look more like you. Though the world tells us to be angry and gives us reasons to be angry, though the world values rage and volume and arrogance and pride, though we think of worldly powers as the way to Christian success, God, help us to believe your word above all, that we would love as you have loved us and see lives transformed for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to go and also respond to this message from the Word of God, let's sing of lifting the high, the name of Jesus, and going out with peace and with love in the world around us. Would you please stand? <laughs>